have your Bibles tonight, would you open up to Psalm 1? We're taking a few minutes together to look at this well-known psalm, your Bibles or your devices, whatever, whatever gadget you have in front of you. Psalm 1. This is God's Word written for you and for me today. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Father, we ask that you would give us insight uh, into your word this evening. We pray that you would give us your spirit and that you would help us to be those who delight in your word. And that you would show us more of the one who perfectly loved and lived your word, your son, our Savior, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, dear friends, we live in a divided world. I think it's perfectly manifest, especially over these last several weeks, that we live in a world, in a society, in a culture that is radically divided. A world that's even divided geographically have this continent, that continent, this nation, that nation. Are you from the north or are you from the south? Uh, we live in a world that is divided uh, socially. Are you from the right side of the tracks or the wrong side of the tracks? We live in a world that is divided economically, the so-called 99% and the 1%. And, of course, a world that is divided politically, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, liberal, conservative, neoconservative, radical, progressive, you a Aggie or a Longhorn or the best, or you a Baylor Bear. And of course, we could go on and on and on. We live, in all seriousness, in a radically divided world. But when we look to the Bible, uh, when we look to issues of ultimate importance, issues of ultimate seriousness. The Bible, at the end of the day, knows only one division. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ or do you love the world? Believer or unbeliever, are you of the seed of the woman or are you of the seed of the serpent? And the Bible has many different metaphors and many different, different descriptions that it uses to describe this ultimate division. The wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats. Are you on the, the narrow path that leads to life? Or are you on the broad and easy path that leads to destruction? Simply put, are you resting in Christ by faith or are you looking to yourself to save yourself? Now, as we look this morning, or this evening rather, together at Psalm 1, uh, the, 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 we are met face to face with this ultimate division. 
Psalm 1, this wonderful psalm that begins the Psalter, that along with Psalm 2, and, and next time I'm, I'm able to come uh, preach, we'll look at the, the, the complement psalm, Psalm 2. These two psalms serve as something of a preface or an introduction to the whole of the Psalter. And Psalm 1 presents us with these two ways, with this ultimate division. And it uses this idea of the righteous and the wicked. The believer and the unbeliever, in the language of Psalm 1, the righteous and the wicked. In fact, if you look down at your Bibles, look at the end of verse 3 and verse 4. End of verse 3 and verse 4. If you look at this psalm from a literary structure, this is the very heart and core of the psalm. If you want to nail down to where the very core of this psalm is, the last phrase in verse 3 and the first phrase in verse 4 is where, is where you would land. And all that he does, and the he there is the righteous one, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. Boom. There's the center of the psalm. The prospering of the righteous, the wicked, however, are not so. If you look down at verse 6, again, you see these two groups in stark contrast. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So as we work our way through this psalm together this evening, I want us to focus on the righteous. We're going to spend more time looking at the righteous because the psalm, Psalm 1, spends more time looking at the righteous. Now I want us to note four characteristics of the righteous one. Four characteristics of the righteous one. And as we work our way through, we'll contrast the righteous one with the unbeliever, with the wicked. But we'll look at these four characteristics as we work through this psalm together. And the first characteristic is this. The righteous one is distinct from the world. The righteous one is distinct from the world. Look back at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now, this verse and these phrases describe the general tenor of this man's life. The general tenor of the believer's life. It, it describes a, a pattern, if you will, of his life. That is to say that he is one who is different from the world around him. He is one who is different from this fallen world. And again, it's describing the pattern of his life. Note the present tense verbs. That he walks and continues to walk, not in the counsel of the wicked. That he stands and continues to stand, not in the way of sinners. He sits and continues to sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, this is not sinless perfection. That is Christ alone. But this is describing the regular tenor in the pattern of the believer's life. A continual lifestyle, if you will, that he does not fit in with the sinful world around him, that he is different. That is to say, a Christian is one who is called out of the world into the glorious promises of Jesus Christ. He is called from the world so that he might be a witness to the world. And if you're here this morning or this evening, and you are a believer, you have been called out of the world so that we may then go be a witness to the world. A believer is one who has been 
set free from the kingdom of darkness and called into the kingdom of the light of Jesus Christ so that we may then shine that light back into this dark present world. And we can see wonderful illustrations of this throughout the Bible. Think just for a couple. Now think of the nation of Israel. The Lord called the nation of Israel to be a, a distinct and special people unto himself. The nation of Israel was a, a nation that was set apart and that was different than the pagan nations around them. And, and, and they were different in many ways. On the one hand, uh, they were a nation that worshipped the one true and living God. They were the only monotheistic nation in that, that, in that ancient Near Eastern world. But how did that difference manifest itself? How was it manifest that the Israelites were different than the world around them? Well, if you're reading your Bibles, and like every good Christian, you start your read the Bible in a year, in the book of January, around oh, February of March, you come to that mysterious thing we call the book of Leviticus. And in the book of Leviticus, you come across all these strange kind of laws, this law, that law, and you come across the food laws. They could eat this, but they couldn't eat that. They could eat this, this kind of lizard, but not this kind of, of fish, for example. Why did the Lord give his people those somewhat odd food laws? Well, there's a lot of conjectures, but I would suggest ultimately he gave them those food laws so that every bite they put in their mouth, they would remember that they were a people set apart from the world around them. That even to the very mundane things like their very diet, what they ate, they were reminded that they were set apart from the nations around them. The Lord was teaching them like we teach our children. We teach them very tangibly. We give them blocks. One block plus one block equals two blocks. And the same way the Lord was teaching his infant people, Israel, that they were distinct from the world around them. Why? So that they might shine the light of their covenant God to those nations around them. Remember the Queen of Sheba. She had heard all of the wonderful blessings that the Lord had poured on his nation. She comes and says, I need to see what I've been hearing. And she says, the half had not been told me. So the nation of Israel was distinct from the pagan nations around them. What does Paul tell us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2? That we are to not be what? Conformed to the world. We are not to be conformed to this world around us. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the ultimate example of one who stood like a shining light differently in every step that he took, the words that came out of his mouth, he was different, obviously, from the sinful world around him. But we can go a step further when we look at these three clauses. Go back and look at what it says. It says the, the believer or the righteous one is one who walks not in the counsel, this idea of the thought processes of, of, of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, this idea of, one, of one's lifestyle, how one lives their life, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, the idea of a belonging. We don't belong in this world, of course, we, have, we belong to heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Ralph Davis, a wonderful scholar, has a great little commentary on the Psalms, and he says this on verse 1 with respect to the righteous man. 
the cues that he follows, the directions that he takes, the company that he enjoys are all countercultural. He's not just a nice, easygoing, tolerant chap, as only Ralph Davis could put it. So the believer is at the same time content and discontent. As believers, we are content because we are in Christ. Because all of God's promises are yes and amen to us in Christ. Even a small group here this evening, we are citizens of glory. And we are content in that. At the same time, we're to have a holy discontentment. A holy discontentment because we're not yet home. Because we live in a world that is still groaning under the curse. We, we live in a world that is filled with, with lying and anger and murder and division and so on and so on and so on. So on the one hand, we're content because we're in Christ. On the other hand, we have a holy discontentment because we don't belong. In the ultimate sense, we don't belong to this world. Rather, we are citizens of heaven. So in this first point, there's a subtle warning to us, to us as Christians. There's a subtle warning to us as the church to be on guard against the creeping influences of the world, the creeping influences of sin. There's a great danger to worldliness. If, if, you, if you consider it, we hear preaching, in other words, the authoritative proclamation of the word, maybe one, two, Three hours, if you go morning and evening, or maybe a Wednesday night, something, if you're really good. Three hours a day, a week. The world preaches at us 24-7. And it preaches a false gospel. It preaches a gospel filled with lies. And very often we perhaps don't realize the subtle influences of the world and, and of sin, how it seeps into our lives. It's like carbon dioxide. You can't see it, you can't smell it. And before you know it, you've been... You've been suffocated by the ways of the world. We are to be on guard. And there's a test for us. Is there something about your life and your following of Jesus that is countercultural, that is different from the world around us? And I often say that for, the, for believers today, it is actually easier and easier to stand apart from the world. Loving your spouse well stands apart from the world. Raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord radically stands apart from our world today. Setting apart the Lord's Day is perhaps the strangest thing we do all week. Actually focusing and seeing Sunday, seeing this hour, this day, as the highlight of our week is, 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 is strange to the world around us. We don't have to go out of our way to be distinct from the world. John tells us, 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. And of course, we could, let's, let's set that in contrast to the wicked, to the unbeliever. Some people put, they love the world. They are at home in the world. They look like the world. They, they live and they breathe and they are very comfortable with the ways of the world. What does Jesus tell us in John chapter 15, verse 19? If you were of the world, Speaking to, to, to believers, if you were of the world, the world would love you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But I have chosen you out of the world, Jesus tells his children. So the first characteristic of the righteous person, 
of the believer is that he is distinct from the world. But then secondly, the second characteristic is that he delights in the word. He is distinct from the world. Secondly, he delights in the word. Look at verse 2. But, and here's that great contrast, but his, the righteous man, the Christian, delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we are distinct from the world, not to look and do anything we want to. We don't go our own way, but rather we run to the word. We, we meditate on the word. It's a wonderful word that the psalmist uses when he speaks of this meditating. It's one of those words that kind of sounds, that sounds like it looks. And it's the idea of a, a constant humming noise. And so you can imagine just kind of a constant humming, that you're, you're almost humming the word of God. You're meditating on it. You're chewing on it. You're reading it over and over again. So as opposed to following the way of the world, the righteous person follows the way of the word, we might say. Again, what does Paul say in Romans 12 too? Do not be conformed to the world. He doesn't leave it there. He's just like the psalmist. Perhaps the psalmist was on his mind when he was writing Romans 12. Do not be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, implication, by the word of God. And then what does it say? He meditates on it when? Five minutes a day? Ten minutes a day, perhaps? No, day and night. This is what, what we call a mirrorism. It doesn't mean only at day and only at night, but it's two opposites that are all inclusive. And so uh, he meditates on it all the time. But the word of God, the promises of God, the things of God are always continually on his mind. The 66 books of the canon are always flowing through our veins, we might say. The whole Bible as well is in view. The whole Bible for the whole person for the whole of life. That's what the psalmist is getting at. The whole Bible for the whole person for the whole of life. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 verse 10 that the word of God was sweeter to him than honey and more precious than jewels. He loves and he delights in the word of God. Look at that, that phrase. His delight is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't just read it for reading its sake. He doesn't just read it to check off the box. Although that's a good thing. If you don't feel like reading your Bible, we still ought to read our Bible. But what's in view here, what the psalmist wants us to understand is that we delight in it. We, we love the word of God because we love the God of the word. Why will we delight in this book? You know, just, what, how many, a thousand some odd pages? Leather, perhaps? Why, why do we delight in this book? Why, why are we, as Wesley said, people of the book? Because we know that it's God's word. That it is the inspired, perfect word of the one true and living God who spoke this universe into existence and who, lo and behold, came down low to save us, to redeem us, to become incarnate in the person of his Son, to drink the cup of the wrath that we deserve. He has given us this book by his grace. It's an act of grace that he has given us this Bible. That's why we love the Word of God, because it is the Word of God. 
God who creates us, who sustains us, who redeems us, who loves us to such an extent that he would send his son to suffer the agonies of hell for each and every one of us. Again, what's the contrast? What's the antithesis? What's the the wicked man or the unbeliever? He doesn't love the word. He loves the world. So whereas the Christian, the righteous man, is distinct and is discontented in the world and he loves the word, the exact opposite is, is the case with the wicked one. He does not love the word, but he is comfortable in the world. Think of what Paul says about Demas. There's fearful, fearful words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Demas deserted me because he was in love with this present world. He was in love with this present world. And when Paul was at his greatest moment uh, of need, he says, Timothy, come and see me. I need, I need some encouragement, Timothy. Bring the scroll. I, I need you as well to encourage me, brother, because everyone has left me, including Demas. Because he was in love with this present world. Dear friends, Satan does not fear a dusty Bible. He doesn't have any fear of a Bible that collects dust. But he greatly trembles at a Bible that is bent, with pages that are kind of all messed up, that are underlined, a Bible that that has... Your, your fingerprints all over it. He trembles at that Bible. And may that Bible be the Bibles that we have in our own homes and in our own lives. So two characteristics thus far. The righteous man, the believer, is distinct from the world. He delights in the word. And then thirdly, and following on from our second point, he is grounded in the truth. He is grounded in the truth, verses 3 in four, so look back at verse 3. He is like a tree. And here the psalmist is using a metaphor to describe the righteous man. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Now here the picture is of a tree in a desert climate, in a dry climate, in a barren climate. And what's, what's going on with this tree? Is this tree dying? Is this tree withering away? No, this tree, the leaf does not wither, but... Amazingly, it's producing fruit in the midst of a a desert, barren climate. You have this tree that is beautifully producing sweet, luscious fruit. Why? Because it has been planted on purpose, strategically, by streams of water. Of course, we we can all imagine what this might look like. Think of an oasis in, in the desert, for example. Why is there an oasis? Why is there this lush green in the midst of a... Of a, of a barren wilderness because there's water there, because there's life-giving water. The roots are, are, are saturated. The roots are, are attached to the source of life. They're attached to the water. Now, Jeremiah 17 gives us a, the, the exact same image. Let me read a couple of verses from Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, verses 7 and 8. And then listen to what Jeremiah says. He says the very same kind of thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. And then he gives this metaphor. He is like a tree planted by water. And again, the, 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 the image is of a tree that was on purpose planted next to a source of life. 
He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its, leave, its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Again, note this picture. A climate of barrenness, a climate of death, a climate of hardship, that if there was not a source of life, if there was not a, a source of water, there would be no hope. There would be only what? Death and starvation. But this tree, this righteous man, is planted, is connected to the source of life. And thus, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of a desert season, we might say, he will not fear. In fact, he will bear fruit. His leaves will not wither, but he will bear fruit. We have a a good friend of our family. Some of you might have, uh, we might have mentioned uh, to you, uh, her to you before. She's on the church prayer list. Uh, she's battling uh, cancer, a fairly aggressive uh, kind of cancer, and she's been going through some f- uh, pretty serious bouts uh, of chemo. And I guess it was a few weeks ago, I believe, she had a, a, a quite an intense um, bout of chemo, some some intense tests, and she sent out a a request to her friends asking for some of their favorite hymns so that when she was going through uh, the, this test and the, the, this you know, several hour long procedure that she had that she would, that she would put these hymns in her, in her iPod. And why would she do that? So she could be encouraged by the word of God. So she could be encouraged by the promises and by the truths of scripture, so that when she was going through what we might call a, a, a desert time, a time of barrenness, a time of hardship, when you're just standing there, you're receiving treatment, receiving a, a very uh, difficult procedure, you're receiving the water of life by means of these wonderful, glorious hymns. That's a, something of a very practical example of what the psalmist is talking about here in Psalm 1, verse 3. Its leaf does not wither, it bears fruit in its season. In all that he does, he prospers. But again, let's, let's look at the, the contrast. What's the antithesis? Verse 4, look at verse 4. The wicked are not so. In the original, there's actually a very strong contrast, a very solid, strong contrast. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. And here's a second agricultural uh, metaphor. I haven't actually ever seen this. I don't know if any of you have seen this going on, but I think we've read about it. We can get the picture. It's the picture of a, of a hill, and you're on the top of a hill where the breezes can come through, and the person who would be gathering the harvest uh, would gather the harvest and would toss it up, and the, the weightier, uh, solid, healthy grain would fall to the ground, and the much lighter chaff would be, would be blown away and would be collected uh, to get rid of. And this is a metaphor for the wicked person, for the wicked individual, for the unbeliever, for the one who has no roots in the word of God, for the one who is at home in the world, for the one who does not delight in the word of God. There's no stability, there's no grounding in truth, but he just is blown away with the ways of the world, is blown away with the sinful ways of our world. In fact, commentators even note that the brevity 
of this description, you'll note that the wicked gets a lot less airtime than the righteous one. Look, look at how much fuller the description is of the righteous. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit, leaf not withering, prospering in all he does. And note how, how brief the description of the wicked is. Boom. Wicked not so, like the chaff, like the chaff, the wind drives away. And the brevity of the description speaks to the, the brevity of their life, so to speak. The, the, the emptiness, the fleeting nature of the lives of those who have no anchor in the word of God and the promises of God. The sad reality is that so often the unbeliever doesn't, doesn't see this. He doesn't recognize the chaff nature of his life. He doesn't recognize the chaff quality, the emptiness of his life. He is blind to his own sin. He's blind to his chaff, if you will, way of life. And what he sees as satisfaction is really the groanings of an aching heart. What the wicked man sees and where he searches for satisfaction is nothing but the groanings of an aching heart. St. Augustine is a perfect example. Looking at this philosophy and that philosophy, looking at it's sexual um, uh, activity uh, again and again and again was merely the groanings of his aching heart that were only satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know those who were looking in all the wrong places, if you will. And what an opportunity we have and what an opportunity this new fledgling church has to take that good news to Sugarland or Richmond and, and beyond for those who, who have an aching, groaning heart to give them the good news of the gospel, to give them the foundation of God's word. That is, that's my prayer for you and that's uh, our prayer uh, for one another. So first, let's think, we're thinking of four characteristics of the righteous one. He is distinct from the world. He delights in the word. He is grounded in truth. And then fourthly and finally and most wonderfully, he is known by his Lord. He is known by his Lord, verses 5 and 6. Look at verse 5 first, and we'll begin with the, the wicked, the contrast with the wicked. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Two things were said here about the wicked one, about the unbeliever. Remember who this person is, someone who is at home in the world, who, is, who fits in in this sinful, fallen world, and takes no delight in the Word of God, has no foundational roots in God's promises. What, what is his end, if you will? Verse 5, two things are said. First, he will not stand in the judgment. Of course, that's the final judgment in context. He will not stand in the final judgment. He is not accepted of the Lord. Simply put, his sins have not been washed away. His sins are still weighing down on his own head. He's not covered and clothed in the beautiful, spotless righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But he's like the goats that are banished, tragically, to eternal judgment. In the second description, he will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. He is cut off from the people of God. The congregation of the righteous is the idea of the church, those who, who are in covenant fellowship with our Lord. He will not be with them. He's cut off from the people of God. 
He's like those that John describes in Revelation 22, those who are outside the New Jerusalem, those who are outside the, the, the beautiful city of our Lord. Dear friends, this is deadly serious business, even for a small group like this. This is serious, weighty business the psalmist is dealing with. We're talking about eternal destinies. Look at the end of verse 6. The way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Remember what Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps some of the most frightening words in all of the Bible. Remember, many will come up to Jesus and will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these great things in your name? And how does Jesus respond? Depart from me, I never knew you. The most frightening words in all of Scripture. Depart from me. Why? I never knew you. Which leads to where we'll wrap up tonight. The Christian, fourthly, is one who is known by the Lord. The righteous man, the one who loves and delights in the word, the one whose roots are sunk deep down in the word of God. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. It's actually interesting what this verse doesn't say. We might expect this verse to say, he will stand in the judgment. He will be a part of the congregation of the righteous. We might expect it to say the exact opposite of what it says about the wicked, but wonderfully it says what? For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord, it should be all caps in your Bible. This is, this is Yahweh, the covenant Lord who makes promises to his people and who keeps his promises at the cost of the death of his own son. He knows it's what we call a present participle in the original language. That is, he knows you. He knows you now. He'll know you tomorrow. He will know you intimately and personally and savingly next year, ten years down the road, and unto eternity. He knows you as a father knows his precious child. This is a knowing of a, of a, of a loving. This is, this is a, what the Lord says about his people when they were in slavery in Egypt, Exodus chapter 2, verse 25, they prayed to the Lord, the Lord heard their prayers, and it says, and he knew them. He knew them because they were his people, and he was their God. This is, the, this is what marks the believer. This is what marks the righteous man, the righteous woman, that our Lord knows us. He loves us, and he will never stop Loving us. So where do we go with this? Three very brief final thoughts. We've looked at four characteristics of the righteous man. He is distinct from the world. He delights in the word. He is grounded in the truth. And he is known by his Lord. He is known by his heavenly Father. What do we do with this? Three very brief things. First, Jesus tells us in Luke 24 that the Psalms, the whole Old Testament points to him. So there's a sense in which we can, we can think of these four characteristics and say that Jesus is the ultimate righteous man, is he not? Take those four characteristics and apply them to Jesus Christ. Jesus was one who was separate from sinners. 
He was holy. He was undefiled. He was the sinless one. He was the one who perfectly hated sin. Jesus is the one who most loves the word of his Father. In fact, the very reason he came to earth was to perfectly obey the word of his Father. Thirdly, Jesus is the one who in the midst of uh, of the wilderness of this world prospered in an ultimate sense by purchasing salvation and redemption for helpless sinners like all of us. And of course, Jesus is the one who is most perfectly known by his Father. He, at the end of the day, ultimately is this righteous one that the believers of the Old Testament were looking for. Every blessing we have is because we belong to him. We belong to this righteous one. We don't leave it there. We don't leave it there. There is a a call to every one of us. There is a call to every one of us. Do we delight in God's word? Is your Bible handled or is it gathering dust at home? If you read your Bible on your apps, are you... Are you savvy on your Bible app? Because you've been there. You've been there. You've highlighted. You know and love and delight in the word of your promise-making, promise-keeping, loving Heavenly Father. Is there something distinct in your life? So that when others see you, they say, you know, there's something different about him. Can't quite put my finger on it. But but the way he, he speaks, the way he He praises his spouse in public. The way he tries to gently and lovingly raise his children. The way every Sunday, no matter what, I see them loading up in the car uh, and and heading off to church. There's something different about that individual. Something different about that family. Maybe I'll find out what it is. Is there something distinct in your own life that separates, that distinguishes us from the world. So we don't, we don't leave it there, but we apply it to our own lives. And then finally, and we'll close with this, Psalm 1 is what I call a big picture psalm. It's something of a, of a world view psalm. Look at what it says there in verse, in verse 3. In all that he does, he prospers. There's something about this psalm that we, we, we get a glimpse of its fulfillment now. But our ultimate final prospering awaits until we see our Savior in heaven. Because there are a lot of psalms that talk about the psalmist not prospering from a worldly perspective. There are a lot of psalms that talk about the nitty-gritty challenges of this life. There are a lot of psalms where the psalmist says, I don't understand why the wicked prosper. So this is a big picture psalm in which the psalmist is taking a step back and he's saying, this ultimately will be true in glory. Yes, in all that we do, we do prosper. We walk by faith but, but, and not by sight, but it will be in glory when we will receive the, the final inheritance, when we will see our Savior face to face. And so these psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, both give us the big sweeping view of all of history, and they point us forward to that day when we will see our Savior and we will prosper in the truest sense, when we we will see our Savior face to face. And may the Lord give us strength until that day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm, the psalm that perhaps many of us know well. But Father, we need your grace. 
For as we've discussed this evening, it is so easy to be lured by the ways of the world. And Father, we would be kidding ourselves if we thought we were above that. And so Father, we need your spirit. We need your grace that we might follow hard after the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And Father, may we be those who delight in your word, who love your word, who want to know your word better. May we be those who have roots that are sunk deep down and are grounded. No matter what storms and what deserts are around us, our roots are deep down sunk into your promises that you have given us in Christ. And Father, may we rejoice that you, at the end of the day, know us. That you know us as a father knows his child. That you know us today, that you will know us tomorrow, that you will know us next year, and that you will know us perfectly as your blessed children unto eternity. May that encourage each and every one of us this very evening. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.